1: You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft, coming out in May 2010. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org privacypiracy. Hey, Murray, what's our show about today?
2: Our show is about transparency and privacy, and we have a wonderful guest. Let me tell you about David Brin. He is a scientist, inventor, and New York Times best-selling author. He's got books translated into 25 languages, and he has won the multiple Hugo, Nebula, and other uh, book awards. A film directed by Kevin Costner was based on David's novel, The Postman. Other works have been optioned through Paramount and Warner Brothers, and one of them, the People, has been called a book of ideas disguised as a fast-moving and fun-noir detective story set in a vividly original future. His novel, The Life Eaters, explored alternate outcomes to World War II. David's science fictional Uplift Universe explores a future when humans genetically engineer higher animals like dolphins to speak, which I would love since I'm a real dolphin lover. As a scientist and futurist, David Brin is seen frequently on shows like The Architects, Universe, and Life After People, the most popular show ever on the History Channel, which was another show that I really love. I love to watch the History Channel. And he's also had appearances on PBS and NPR. He's also much in demand to speak about future trends, Keynoting for IBM, Google, Procter & Gamble, Microsoft, Qualcomm, even Homeland Security and the CIA. You can see a lot more about what he's done at David Brin, that's dot com slash speaker. And that you can find out what some of the speaking engagements he's had. But also at David Brin.com, you can find out much more about him. He serves on an advisory board ranging from astronomy, space exploration, nanotech, and SETIC to national defense and technical ethics. His nonfiction book, The Transparent Society, which is what we're going to talk about today, explores the dangers of secrecy and loss of privacy in our modern world. It garnered the prestigious Freedom of Speech Prize from the American Library Association, So you can learn more about him and his books and movies at davidbrin.com. Thank you, David, for joining us. We are so pleased to have you.
0: It's my pleasure, Marty.
2: Well, you know, talking about transparency, there is so little transparency. People don't know when cookies are being collected. People don't know when spyware is looking at what they're doing or there's pop-ups and they have no idea what is being collected about them. This is a very non-transparent society that we're living in right now. And your book is about how society becomes transparent, meaning that there are few obstacles to information. So what does that mean to society? What does that mean about privacy? Well, it's important to put this
0: in the historical context. Um, and We have 4,000 years of history on this planet uh, recorded in, in clay tablets and so on. And... Um, Throughout that time, we lived in uh, our ancestors lived in pyramid-shaped social structures, with a few at the top lording it over masses below. That's the natural human social pattern, and and our and our hearts still lean toward it, in in as you can see by all the popularity of vampires and aristocrats and 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 all these symbolic kings and wizards that 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 people uh, like to see movies about, but. About um, 400 years ago, things started changing dramatically. We started getting what was called the Western Enlightenment. And um, society gradually moved more away from a pyramidal social structure to one that's more shaped like a diamond. That is fatter in the middle. Uh, Until today, the middle class, at least until, until the last five years or so, the middle class was by far the largest element of society. And this also reflected in the power arrangements in society, that it used to be that those at the very top had all the power. And under the Enlightenment, those in the middle acquired an awful lot, less, less per person than the aristocrats and the oligarchs, but on mass, a great deal of power. This correlated with technological advances in how much people could know. You go back 400 years and you have the invention of tools absolutely important uh, breakthroughs, the glass lens, which led to telescopes and and microscopes, which led to almost all of science, and movable type, Gutenberg's uh, printing press, which one of these expanded what humans could see, and the other expanded what humans could know, because all of a sudden, books were more available. This was followed by periodicals like newspapers and magazines and illustrated um, Illustrations in them. Um, this was followed by radio, by television. Every generation since Gutenberg has had either a minor or a major crisis of what do we do about the sudden increase in information flow. And every generation has wrung its hands and had some people uh, agonize that human beings can't handle this. And therefore, you know, it has to be restricted or, or, or we need protectors to handle. The information flow for us. And others who said, no, it's going to be all right. People will adapt. It's going to be great. This is going to change everything for the better. And very often what happened was a mix. Uh, for example, when uh, Hitler was rising in power in Germany, the aristocrats allowed him to take power because they thought they could shut him off at any point in time because they owned the newspapers. And they we neglecting to notice that new means of communication had arrived in the form of loudspeakers and radio, and these, at least temporarily, made um, made made uh, Hitler and and the other demagogues of the 1930s seem almost godlike in their amplification to a degree that we would find laughable today because we we're inoculated against the, against that effect. So, what I'm saying is, it's been this this, this push-pull of good and bad effects increased ability to get information. Uh, increases in our vision, increases in, our, um, in, in a, what we can know, and in increases in what we can pay attention to. Until you get to the miracle of, um, of 1990, when uh, a few dozen American officials suddenly decided to do something that I think is the most amazing thing that has ever been done by any group of aristocrats in human history. And that is, they decided to unleash the internet. Uh, they didn't have to. If you were judged by human nature, you wouldn't have expected them to do this. They decided that, except for a tiny little sliver of authority that the Department of Commerce still has with um, ICANN, uh, an organization that controls a tiny aspect of the internet. Except for that, the internet was simply unleashed and handed to the world. Well, this was an amazing thing and it was partly responsible for our growth in the 1990s. Um, but the main effect was that human access to vision, knowledge, and attention uh, expanded several orders of magnitude, and we're dealing with, the, with this crisis now. And, you know, the arguments over whether the effects are good or bad are, are you know, these are things that we can discuss during this hour.
2: And there is. There's the beauty of the Internet, which we all love it because we can communicate with people we haven't maybe seen in 20 years that are, you know, in in Europe. I mean, I used to have nannies from Denmark that I can now see their children easily on the Internet. That's wonderful. We can do great research without spending hours and hours in a library that we have to drive in the middle of the night. I mean, those are the wonderful things that we can do. But there's also all that insidious stuff that's going on. And, you know, when you were talking about transparency, and I think we need to kind of clarify all that thing about transparency because there is some tra- – I mean, there is transparency. I mean, we can see where people are with GPS. We can see where they're moving. We can see what they're buying with RFIDs. We're in a, in a surveillance society. You can see if I ran a red light with a video – but we also have a, lo- a lack of transparency in what's going on insidiously when, for example, uh, information is collected about us. If you're on Facebook and, you know, the Facebook is collecting information and it's sold about you or they're allowing third parties to collect this information and sell it and then target market you or perhaps do something that's a privacy invasion for you. So you've got this push-pull about transparency versus lack of transparency as well. How do you reconcile that?
0: Well, first off, you have to look logically at what you just said, and that is you were complaining about uh, higher authorities, um, aristocrats of one sort or another, um, gathering information about you, but you were also complaining about your lack of knowledge about what they're doing. But well, these are actually two separate things, and it's a very important point. Uh, first off, we have to understand that ours is the first civilization in human history whose principal um, legends, um, moral ethos, the, the, the stories, that the morality tales that we get from our movies, from our books, from our uh, songs, the principal propaganda message that we're all exposed to, especially as Americans, is suspicion of authority. You cannot name for me a movie that you, more than two or three movies that you've enjoyed in the last 30 years, that did not the hero did not bond with the um, audience in the beginning by um, uh, either resenting or sticking it to some authority figure. Um, the main difference between a decent Republican and a decent Democrat is that the decent Republican is concerned about undue authority and power by snooty academics and faceless government bureaucrats. The decent Democrat is, is afraid of undue authority and power or sneaking a, you know, abuse of power by uh, aristocrats, oligarchs, and, and, and faceless corporations. If you parse it that way, their fundamental worries, they're, they're both right, because human beings are human beings, and wherever power accumulates, you have the potential for corruption. And those who are powerful, whether they are government elites, elites of money, elites of of corporate power, uh, criminal elites, foreign, they will try to keep what they're doing secret while finding out as much as they can about everybody else. And they will feel morally justified um, because they are the good guys in their own eyes. So it's important to understand this dynamic that, um, that we're concerned about uh, accumulations of power abusing us because of the science fiction we were raised on, starting with 1984. Um, and, and so that's a good thing. It's a good thing that we worry about it. Um, now, the question is, what's the proper approach for how to deal with power in this new era? Obviously, the powers that be are going to try to know more and more about us. Uh, they'll rationalize th- often that it's for our own good.
2: Right. Mm-hmm.
0: So the question is, what's the best response to that? When the 9-11 uh, events happened, uh, I soon thereafter got uh, several emails from uh, fans and leaders uh, saying, page 206, exclamation point. And I wondered what they meant. So I, I flipped to page 206 of the Transparent Society which had been written about four years earlier. And on page 206, there's a place where I say, you know, I'm talking about this trade-off, and I say, um, let's, let's do a mental experiment and imagine what might happen to our laws if, say, for example, terrorists ever brought down both World Trade Center towers. Mm-hmm. Um, what would the government ask for? And I went on to describe a more reasonable version of the Patriot Act. So, um, you know, I'm not saying that in order to brag about my prognostication skills. What I'm saying is that uh, it was obvious that sooner or later we were going to take a major hit, and when that happened, the result would be a ratcheting effect, that you would get something like the Patriot Act, in which we would hand to our government more powers of surveillance, in order to protect us. And those powers would never be taken back. Right. So what happened was the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union and and our Protectors of Freedom, immediately went after the Patriot Act, in part because it was a much worse version than I expected because of the people who were in charge at that time.
2: The knee-jerk reaction? Uh, Yeah. Well,
0: you know, the, the people who were in charge who asked for those powers asked for far more than they needed and took advantage of the panic. But in any event, the ACLU went after what I considered to be the wrong parts of the Patriot Act. So even though I'm very critical of the right wing in America, I'm also critical of the left. What the ACLU went after and made noises about was how much power, increased power, the Patriot Act gave the government to know more about us. And that was entirely the wrong thing to what they hardly complained about at all was what infuriated me, and that is the government's increased power to keep what they're doing secret from us. And it's important to make this distinction because those who say we should pass laws to prevent governments or corporate elites or any of those things from knowing things are ignoring human nature. You cannot stop. Society's elites from knowing stuff. Name from the one period in human history when the law ever prevented any elite from knowing anything that it could possibly know. We're humans, and therefore we're monkeys. And monkeys feel threatened if they can't know everything there is to know. As an experiment, I'd like you all to go to the zoo, pick up a point Climb into the baboon enclosure and try to poke out the eyes of the biggest baboon. <laughs> Here's a clue. He won't let you. But the baboon will grudgingly let you look at him. That is the answer. The, the old um, story from Juvenal in, in Roman times, he asked the, the question, "Quis ipso custodiet custodius, who will watch the watchman? And the answer in the Enlightenment Starting with the printing press and the glass lens and moving onward and onward and onward, the answer has always been
2: us. Right. Well, David, you know, we had the Privacy Act that was instituted in 1974, and that was supposed to say that government won't have any secret files, that we would have access to that. But what they've done is they've been able to have other huge information brokers collect the information and then share it with them. Like, you know, Choice Point or Axiom or all these other companies that are private companies that do the collection, do the storage, and then just share it with the government. And so we have this problem that they're really getting around the Privacy Act so it stays secret,
0: well, I totally agree, and this is where we need to um, have our vigilance. This is where we need to be militant, ferocious um, in our approach. Um, this is where the American people are at fault for what happened in the first decade of the, of the 21st century by allowing um, a particular leadership claim to basically throw, you know, multiplied by. At least one, possibly two orders of magnitude, the amount of secrecy, hiding things from us. Uh, some things that we're finding out were just absolutely terrible. Um, and and the Obama administration, you know, they're they're trying to cut the number of secrets uh, in half. Well, you know, you multiply something by twenty and then you cut it in half. Well, you know, terrific, great, thank you. Um, but we are the ones who have to
2: responsible for this. You mentioned- now, the Obama, wait, let's let's just hear this. You know, recently we had that Wikipedia leak or something. You know what I'm talking about? Wiki for, leaks. Yes, Whippy a, leak. Whippy leak, yeah. A
0: Pentagon
2: documents. Right, right, of what has been going on in Afghanistan and, and Iraq and killing of civilians and videos and all that. So, you know, I don't see where, and I'm not talking politically, it just seems to me that any powerful entity in our government has wanted to keep these secrets lots of secrets and well, and this is one really good example i mean i don't think that he that you know obama's administration is any better or any worse than bush and we need to have these laws that don't allow them to keep secrets that um you know, like the no-fly list, you know? I mean, this, how do you get off that thing, you
0: know? Well, I, I, I totally agree with you, except, of course, that there is no doubt that Obama is better than Bush. Um, it's just he's nowhere near better enough to um, to get us off the hook because we are the ones who have to deal with this. We are the ones, you cannot count on a government elite, even one that has, thinks of itself as, 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 as being more open, you don't count on them to protect your uh, open access to information. It is a natural fight that has to be waged by the people. And that's just the way of things. Now, uh, you, know, you talk about privacy laws. But you know, Robert Heinlein, the great science fiction author, had a comment about privacy laws that attempt to restrict what the government can know. Or what people can spy on each other and all that, and, and he said, the chief thing achieved by privacy laws is to make the bugs spa- smaller, to make the spy bugs smaller. Hmm. Um, you, you're not going to stop the flow of information with just plain laws, and this is what my friends in the privacy community, you know, uh, just don't get.
2: Uh, we're well, human well David. Human I'm, I'm, human I'm, I'm, Right. I think I think what we talk about and and I'm one of those in the privacy community and and maybe I don't think we're all exactly the same. But I think the question is, when you're going to collect information, let the people know what you're collecting, why you're collecting it, how you're going to use it, how you're going to limit it, how you're going to restrict it and how you're not, you know, and not use it for a secondary use without the permission of the person who you took it from. Absolutely. But the fundamental aspect of that is that if you're trusting one elite to enforce this law
0: upon another elite, there's always the the chance of what's called regulatory capture. That is where the agency that is regulating an industry is captured by that industry. The Bush administration turned this into a high art. When they entered office, they basically appointed the head of almost every regulatory agency Someone from an agent from the industry itself. And, and we saw that in the mineral management service, which, um, <coughs> which brought about the Gulf oil spill by basically not doing their jobs for six or seven years um, while, while going partying with, with, with the uh, members of the industry that were supposed to regulate. Sooner or later, regulat- regulators are eventually, to some degree or another, captured by the the group that is supposed to be regulating, There is an answer to that, and that is transparency. If everybody is looking, then it's much harder to hide stuff, including invasions of our privacy. Now, now I am often accused of being against privacy because I wrote The Transparent Society. Uh, People who say that obviously never read the book because uh, my fourth chapter is all about how vital privacy is to human beings. It's a fundamental desideratum of human nature uh, to have, um, be able to share intimacies with, with, with those who are close with us, to be able to make plans uh, with some degree of security. Um, I like privacy. But what I recognize is that the principal person defending my privacy is me, and the principal way I can defend it is by being able to catch the peeping toms, by being able to catch invasions of my privacy. Privacy is going to have to be redefined. It's going to change. It already has over our lives. Look at how the kids use Facebook. It's going to change. It's going to be smaller. And and what what the legal scholars call a curtillage is the close area in and around your home that is legally protected from invasion. And it's different for public figures than it is for private individuals. This is a case where the elites have less cartilage of of privacy than common people. The law is like that. Um, So what I'm I'm talking about in the Transparent Society and, and over the years since is the need for us to not be afraid of increased information flows. Because, ironically, these are the things that we need in order to catch the peeping toms and protect our privacy.
2: We are speaking with David Brin, who is a scientist, inventor, and New York Times bestselling author. He is a futurist also. And we're talking about his book, The Transparent Society, how it explores the dangers of secrecy and the loss of privacy in our modern world. And you can find out a lot more about David at David Brin, that's d a v i d b r i n dot com. David, so let's talk about how we are going to redefine privacy in this information age.
0: Well, for one thing, um, we all know about Moore's law, which is a tendency to have more and more um, uh, advanced uh, computer chips at a fairly predictable rate over the course of time. The chips get bigger and cheaper and more powerful. Well, somebody once called it Brin's Corollary of Moore's Law about cameras. The cameras are getting smaller, cheaper, um, better, and more numerous at a rate that far outstrips Moore's Law. And in a world where cameras are proliferating, I I portray this in several of my novels, including Earth, this proliferation of cameras is um, the logical outgrowth of Gutenberg and the glass lens it's going to make a world where for example you know those little stickers rolls of stickers that little kids sometimes you you find them you know stuck to walls in right. shopping centers and all of that you know little kids going around putting stickers right well you'll be able to buy a roll of penny cameras mm. um you as the moment you take it off the roll and stick it on a lamppost it's its battery is good for a year and it has its own address in IPV6 cyberspace and Anyone, or possibly just the owner, or or anyone on the web is going to be able to access it. Public spaces will be even less private than they are now. And let me ask you this. If you outlaw this, will this actually prevent it? Or will it do what Heinlein said and simply make them smaller and restrict these new godlike powers to the elite? The only people who are going to be affected by the law are us, the average people. Right, right. Here's, here's, here's another example. You're going to be walking down the street in Thailand, in Bangkok, and, and on the corner of your sunglasses, there will be a camera. And it's going to read the faces of everyone passing by, look them up, and provide captions, name tags, to everyone who's walking by. Hmm. It might provide the first sentence or two of their uh, web profile. Or if you program your glasses slightly differently, um, the inside of your glasses will, uh, will convey um, dissenting opinions from their ex-spouses <laughs> or cover everybody in sight with, with groucho um, noses and, and, and mustaches. Uh, the buildings may be covered with vines and dinosaurs may be looking over, over them. This is called augmented reality. Normal people will simply use it to put a yellow brick road, to paint the road yellow in the direction that they want to go. But, but kids, will, kids will be giggling all the time. You know, their, their, their glasses will be stripping us naked and turning us blue without our knowledge. Look, what is this? What am I talking about? I'm talking about the fact that when you meet somebody at a party, and, and the next step is to have this in contact, lenses, you'll never be at a loss for their name. You'll know... who they are, and possibly their credit rating when you're doing business with them. (laughs) Um, This is a different world, or is it? Because think about it. The human brain can know well, in their minds, anywhere from 2,000 to 10,000 individuals. That is roughly the number that you would have met back when we evolved. In the small villages, uh, if you were the gregarious person who pushed a cart into the town to to make do business, where you would do deals by handshakes because you knew each other's reputation. Right. This intimacy of the village and of reputation, we've uh, adapted to the fact that we have to deal with so many more people every day in our lives by creating prosthetics for reputation, and we carry them around in our wallet. They are called driver's licenses, their IDs, their, their credit cards, their credit ratings. These are prosthetics for the old reputation that simply let you pick up an apple and nod at the vendor and, uh, hey, I owe you. This is all going to be done in your eyeglasses in the future because what the eyeglasses will enable you to do with augmented reality is to live in a village of 8
2: billion people. Now, let me ask you something, David. I... You know, I use the internet all the time. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm involved in meeting people all the time on that, and I feel so overwhelmed by this information. I'm already on information overload. What is that going to do to us as human beings? To oh be, well, but
0: th- you're asking the same question that I, I, said people were asking when Gutenberg came out with, 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 with cheap books.
2: Okay. And ever since
0: then the question has always been, can people cope with this new tsunami? And logically speaking, the curmudgeons in every generation should have been right. I mean, when in the Neolithic did our did our ancestors, when we were last evolving, when were they subjected to this kinds of overload? So why are our brains capable of handling it? And every generation has turned out to be able to handle it.
2: So, so the brain will evolve to be able to, because, you know, I'm, I'm an AARP member, okay? <laughs> so maybe my brain can't do it, but maybe, and maybe my daughter who's 24 and my son who's 31 who already feel overwhelmed, maybe their kids', their kids brains will be evolved enough to be able to handle it. Is that well, what you're
0: saying? Well, if things go the way they went the last 400 years, but don't forget, this expansion of what we can see, know, and pay attention to is much bigger yes. than all of the previous ones. So this time, the grouches may be right. <laughs> um, I, I, I am a firm believer in contrariness, which means that I, um, while I am more critical of the, you know, the culture warriors and, and the neocons than I am of the liberals... I, I, you wouldn't. none of my liberal friends think that I'm like that because <laughs> I lay into them all the time. The same is true in this debate between the, um, uh, the, the, the cyber grouches mm-hmm. who are led by a fellow by the name of Nicholas Carr, C-A-R-R. Look up his most recent book and his recent articles on Salon Magazine. Another fellow by the name of Bill Joy, People should uh, look up both of them to hear the downside point of view, and they express it very well. On the other hand, they should also look up Clay Shirky, S-H-I-R-K-Y, and Ray Kurzweil, K-U-R-Z-W-E-I-L. They should look up these people who are the fizzy um, transhuman um, uh, optimists who think that we are very rapidly uh, taking on the powers of God. And they have good evidence on their side, too. Um, I I believe both sides are right, and both sides are terribly, terribly wrong. The optimists are right that we are proving to be fantastically agile in our ability to leap and divide our attention and and grab uh, relevant information with fantastic agility. When I was first an undergraduate at Caltech, we thought logically that science would be over by now, not because we would know everything, but because we would know so much that in order to become a scientist, a person would have to study an ever narrower specialties Uh, until they were 70 years old and then get their PhD before they were actually expert enough to begin researching new things. Logically, it seemed to make sense that scientific progress would cause this terrible problem of over-specialized narrow-mindedness. And that problem has completely gone away. There is less specialization than there ever was today. Specialists collaborate with people in other fields of science and the arts with abandon today, yes. with, with free, greater freedom than ever, because the internet has enabled us to understand what's going on over here, what's going on over there, to cherry-pick little bits of this, to make alliances with this expert, that expert. It's marvelous. It, it seems like utopia. But then Nicholas Carr points out that we seem to have traded this dilemma of over-specialized narrow-mindedness for something just as bad, and that is scatterbrained, shallow-mindedness. Except for the scientists, very few people are delving deep anymore. Very few people are getting their information carefully edited the way our encyclopedia... I'm a big fan of Wikipedia, but the old encyclopedias were carefully pre-checked.
2: Right, (laughs) right.
0: So am I an optimist? Am I a pessimist? That all depends on whether you're a pessimist or you're an optimist. What we need is more people like me who are poking, constantly poking, just like you, Marty. Yeah. You're one of us. You're one of the people who are ornery
2: David, we really can't stop new technology and we can't stop progress. And I'm not one of those who says you can't. I know there are people who say you can't use RFIDs because this is going to be crazy. But it's, I've interviewed, I don't know if you know, Senator um, Joe Smidian, who's from the Silicon Valley and he's from the, he's a California senator and he's really brilliant, you know. And he is not one to say we're going to stop technology, but some of the bills that he's introduced has been to say, let's put a hold till we build into the architecture of the technology the privacy issues so that people are protected.
0: Well, and I, I don't mind attempts to rethink architecture. What worries me is what's called relinquishment or renunciation or... Um,
2: Denial, calm, yeah, yeah.
0: Calming of technology. Yeah. There are a lot of people who... Um, I mean, you, you talk about technology calming and, and it sounds very reasonable, especially since as a science fiction author, uh, I can spin off tales of uh, possible dangers, you know, Michael Crichton was obsessed with this, if we go in this direction, it will result in calamity because man wasn't meant to do this. Uh, that's what every one of his novels was, was about, um, I can certainly go there and I'm involved in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence and this whole question of why we haven't made contact. Well, it could be that everybody makes the same mistakes and destroys themselves. Um, So believe me, I'm painfully aware of the possibilities
2: for uh,
0: technological abuse. What I am far more wary of, though, is this relinquishment or calming movement, because uh, I see almost all of the gifts that we have inherited from the Enlightenment, almost all of the gifts that surround us, our, especially our freedoms, um, having arisen from openness.
2: Yes, and, and you know, I would agree with you. I had a guy on my show, and you may have seen it on 60 Minutes. He's a scientist that has, and a doctor, not a medical doctor, but a PhD, who has developed um, this machine that can read your brain, read your mind, Okay. And one of the questions that I asked him, because I had seen it on 60 Minutes and then he came on the show and told me all about this machine, I said, have you worked, I think it was Carnegie Mellon University, I said, have you worked with other departments about building in technology to to consider the privacy aspects of this and what, what should be considered when developing this? And he said, no, he hadn't. And and that's the concern I have is that these scientists and technologists who are really brilliant and have great ideas and only see myopically the benefits they don't look at the insidious things that can happen with this and not actually consider it at the time of how they're developing it.
0: Well, I, I think you're completely right, and I'm a member I'm of the board of directors of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. Exactly. IEET. Yes. I think it's a terribly mm-hmm. important issue, and it needs to be debated. And don't forget that some sciences um, have institutionalized this, starting with the uh, Fuhrer over genetic engineering back in the 1980s.
2: Right. Uh,
0: the biological sciences went through a very, very major reevaluation episode um, and instituted a great many um, rigorous procedures. Um, both ethical and for for uh, safeguards and, uh, and and procedures for reevaluating the procedures. Um, I'm involved in an argument right now in the SETI community as to whether the the uh, those people should have such a reevaluation.
2: You know, and but David, but, but think think about this, David. Think about these medical records. You know, here I'm one who deals with people who are victims of everything from financial identity theft to medical identity theft to cyber identity theft that's a lot of what I do people call me I am an expert on identity theft and in the information age it becomes a real problem and I'm looking at how we have this mandate for electronic medical records and on one hand I'm going this is great I had a fall actually an accident and I could go to the hospital after I was at the ER and get a DVD of everything they took and take it to my doctor it was wonderful. So that's the beauty, that's the benefit side, but I have also seen people whose medical records were confused and sent everywhere, and it wasn't them, or it wasn't their diagnosis. So this is another example of running ahead to institute electronic medical records all over the place without first building in the architect, or at the same time, building in the architecture of the protections and considering the worst that can happen and then preparing for it.
0: Well, I, I, you know, I, I have very, very mixed response, uh, Mari, because um, first off, most of the abuses that you just described um, are better solved by transparency than by, than by restriction. And the main thing that I've been asking privacy uh, advocates uh, for the last 15 years has been um, when you see a problem, consider whether transparency might be a better solution than the human reflex to shut things down.
2: And, and I agree with you. Let me give you an example. In in HIPAA, if you know you have to, you have privacy provisions, right? So let me give you an example. So a woman who's a victim of medical identity theft, if she contacts the 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 hospital and says, "This isn't me." these are not my records. I'm a victim of identity theft. They won't give her the records.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. And that, and that is where that is where um, the, the real fundamental comes up. We can correct our records, like the no-fly list, like, the, like these medical records. You
2: can't really correct them. You we have
0: access to them. Now, yeah. they will claim that if you have access to them, then it makes leaks to other people more likely. Well, the fact is, so as we've seen over and over again, uh, now Experian loses 750,000 records. Now it's Citibank losing uh, 450,000 records.
2: Now it's Blue Cross losing everything you know, that's not encrypted with your not only your financial information and your SSN, but all of your medical records. Nobody <laughs>
0: ever learns the real lesson, and that is that information will squeeze its way out any possible crack. And that our kids are smart. We're going to have to live our lives so that if something leaks, A, we'll be able to find out about it and do what needs to be done. And B, the leak, we have to set up our lives so that the leak, the damage done to us by the leak is fairly minimal, which the kids are learning. They're, They're learning the hard way the difference between you know, exhibitionism that they can get away with that won't harm them over the long term, and other kinds of exhibitionism that they'll regret for the rest of their lives. But the kids understand a fundamental thing, and that is that it is in their best interest to create a civilization in which certain types of things don't harm you. You know, now now if it's known that you had premarital sex, it doesn't destroy you the way it used to.
2: Yeah, like, well, the, like the Scarlet Letter.
0: <laughs> right. Well, there are lots and lots of other things that are becoming like that. For instance, if you were treated once when you were 20 for, for, for drug abuse, that is far less damaging to you unless you want to be President of the United States. Um, it's far less damaging than it used to be. And the biggest defense against um, release of accurate medical records against the damage from that is to all of us create a civilization where uh, if people are nosy about your medical records your response is to shrug and say you nosy SOB are you
2: happy <laughs> you've been listening to K you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net I'm Mari Frank the host Of Privacy Piracy, and we have a wonderful guest with us today. We're interviewing David Brin, who's a scientist, inventor, futurist, and New York Times bestselling author. We've been talking about the issues in his book, one of his books called The Transparent Society, exploring the dangers of secrecy and the loss of privacy in our modern world. So, David, you know when? You, so, you believe that we that we'd be all better off if we had total transparency and, and in no, way, not total, not total. Okay. That, that is a misinterpretation. Okay, so so, so clarify what you. Well, mean. well, I have
0: always believed in privacy. We're going to have to redefine it. The um that we expect around our intimacies and in our home is
2: going to be narrower. Okay, so let's let's define it for the future. Let's. Let's define it for, for what, you know, I've heard for information privacy, it was such as the right to control how your information is used. Okay, that was that's what many people talk about is the right to control how your information is used. Well, I don't
0: agree with that.
2: Right, so so what is the one that we're going, because we don't have that. <laughs> uh, no, we don't. We, uh, <laughs> we instead, don't have of, instead
0: of controlling how our information is used, which which is, uh, telling other people what they're allowed to know. I believe that what we need is our ability to intervene to, in order to ensure that information about us is accurate and fair.
2: Right, and we don't have that. We don't have that either.
0: Uh, well, that is enhanced by transparency. If you have access to your records, if you right. have Access to these lists that you're on. Um, if you have, uh, you know. We have been struggling toward that,
2: right? I mean, the 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 ability to
0: repair your credit ratings, the ability to correct uh, identity theft, is gradually moving forward.
2: Yeah, and you're right. With the Fair Credit Reporting Act, that was really the one example of being able to see. I mean, that was after that was created back in, in the '70s, and then it was amended in 1996, and then in 2003. And it does give us that right to see what's in there, to dispute it, to correct it, and, you know, have it deleted. We don't have that really very specifically yet with our medical records, okay? Well, they're trying to go in that direction, but not there. And, we, and that and
0: will we, and we, be done because people will be so angry.
2: Yes, but we don't have it with regard to background checks. We really don't have that with regard to background checks. And, and how about all of the other information, you know, um, people don't even have that right if something is erroneous on a website, we don't have that right to get that taken down. You know? uh, well I,
0: I, I, I agree with you that the, the, when it comes to private things that are said that are below the level of actionable slander right The, the internet is a cesspool. Yes. And this is an area where I side with the grouches, and I've, I've, I've even, I even wrote a um, paper that was the lead article in the American Bar Association's Journal of Dispute Resolution some years ago about what design elements the Internet needs in order to become useful at refuting things that are false. Right. Because, you see, we have these other older, what I call accountability arenas in civilization. Science, democracy, um, uh, economic markets, and law courts. And nobody has ever really stepped back and and compared what these four things are, what they have in common. And what they all are is mechanisms, human-designed machines, for using human competitiveness to create desired products. Now, in the natural human societies, when people competed with each other and one person won, they would then stomp the competitor flat so they would never come back again. And then, thus, they would become an oligarch or an elite. That's human nature, and it was done in 99% of human civilizations. And the oligarchs are trying to come back in in our civilization as we speak. Uh, That's a separate topic, but I thought I'd slip that in.
2: Right. But you're right. I mean, they are doing it. Sometimes someone will tell terrible things about their competitor to try and get that advantage, you know, on the Internet, right? either uh, in blogging. So you're right. They're still doing that.
0: But in in markets um, and in science and in democracy and in courts, there are all sorts of procedures set up to try to make the competition fair and to make sure the competitors can come back again next year. So in in markets, it's about products and services. In science, it's about about theories and and fact and truth. In courts, it's about justice. And in each of these cases, the style of of the ritualized combat is different than it is in the others. But the fundamental outcome is the same. Over the course of the combat, you should wind up getting better products and services in markets. You should get better policies and leaders in democracy. It's a filthy process, except in science, and even filthy there. But these these mechanisms are sophisticated after 400 years. What the Internet is, is a big melange that ought to be one of these idea markets. But it's missing half of it. The first half is everybody can be creative. Everybody can get it out there. Everybody can find out things and express themselves.
2: Oh, I know. I mean, this is when you think of, uh, anyone can be a journalist. Anybody can put up, a, be a, a movie director on YouTube. I mean, you're right. That is that is incredible. It's beautiful.
0: But, right. But but the other half that exists in those other four arenas is missing. And that is, how can how can the system take bad products? And in the case of the internet, it means opinions, ideas, and all of that. And simply disprove them so that they go get out of the way. Because there's always going to be a tsunami of new stuff. The problem with the Internet is you can refute something on, on, a, on a website, on a comment section of a blog, and your cogent refutal is only there. It, 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 does, it does nothing to prevent the nasty rumor from moving on. So when I say that transparency is a good general palliative, for most modern information age problems. I'm not a fanatic. There are areas in which transparency alone is not sufficient and it's not doing the
2: job. David, let me ask you something. We have about two minutes left, but you being a futurist and, and you really could, you know, whether you're psychic or whether you're just brilliant uh, scientist, it's probably both. <laughs> so tell me, can you sketch a vision for us in about two minutes of what the future is going to be down the line?
0: Well, you know, you have the, the optimists called extropians or, or transhumanists who think we're all going to become gods within 20 years because of Moore's law. And we'll get these, these, um, these things that will expand our minds and expand our brains and, 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 and all of that. I, I'm, a, I'm a grouch when it comes to that happening so soon. Uh, On the other hand, you have those who think that we are spiraling down to hell. Uh, I think we'll muddle through. Um, I think that we will rise to the occasion, as our ancestors did, and we will defend the Enlightenment, which has given us everything that we have and and deserves our loyalty. And I think we need to read up about people like Benjamin Franklin and Adam Smith and the the founders of the Enlightenment. Read, Read their actual words so that we can regain a sense of perspective about the challenge facing our generation
2: and so we won't be using computers they'll be like our, our computers will be like attached to us well <laughs> you know I've, I've
0: described some some of these right like the
2: glasses yeah yeah
0: and 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 some people believe the prosthetics will then be incorporated in us I, I i share a little bit of the creepy feeling about that at the same time i urge people to be agile some of the culture war that we're experiencing this Tearing America apart and weakening it terribly, being foisted on us, is is partly based upon alienation against progress and technology in the future. And that's not how to solve these problems. We have to embrace it, but we have to be the sovereign human masters.
2: And I think the only thing that I'm really worried about is that we lose the intimacy. We lose when people are communicating only through texting and, and emails and or maybe just videos. It just worries me that we are going to lose that, that human intimacy, that human interaction that, that I think is so critical as well. But, that you know, I'm a, maybe I'm old fashioned. Well, no, no, no. <laughs> but I think, I think
0: that people need their friends and they need to talk to their friends. And safety and intimacy. And we're totally on the same page
2: there. Well, I'm going to tell everybody to go to your website at David Brin, that's D A V I D B R I N dot And we loved having you on the show and we'd love to have you back. So thank you, David, for joining us.
0: Sure thing, Marian. Best of luck to us all. Uh, Fight for
2: the enlightenment. Exactly. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Minervine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. And please visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Look at who's coming for our upcoming guests. Read their bios. Go to their websites. Listen to our archived interviews. And join us all the time by just downloading our podcasts. And please write us emails about what's important to you about privacy in the information age. Thank you. Stay private. The
0: opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board
2: of Regents. Hi, I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. Right here on KUCI 88.9 FM Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm pleased to also present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips. And we're welcoming back Sergeant Alan Metz, who works for the County of Orange and Orange County Public Works. And he has also been with the Orange County Sheriff's Department for 10 years. And he is with the Professional Services Reserve Unit. Thanks so much for coming back, Alan. Thank you. So now tell us, what type of people are you looking for to become a reserve deputy sheriff with the Orange County Sheriff's Department?
1: Well, basically, a reserve deputy sheriff has to meet the same qualifications as a regular deputy. They must pass an extensive background investigation to the satisfaction of the department. They must be 20 years of age by the date of the written exam, They must be a U.S. citizen or permanent resident alien. They must have a U.S. high school diploma or a GED uh, test. Uh, Also, they must have no felony convictions as a juvenile or adult and cannot currently be on any form of probation. And last, they must have no domestic violence convictions and cannot currently be subject to a domestic violence restraining order. Besides that, they must be in general good physical condition, uh, also uh, pass a uh, polygraph test, and an interview by a psychologist. So it is quite an extensive program, but it's very worthwhile.
2: Oh, yeah, it's a wonderful program. So I know that there's several level levels of being a sheriff reserve. Why don't you explain those levels and what the difference is?
1: Well, level one is the uh, highest level of reserve deputy. They basically meet the same standards and training as a full-time paid uh, deputy. Uh, there's a level two reserve deputy, which is like the... A second man in a patrol car, they have uh, peace officer powers that are limited to working with a level one in uh, the field. There's many opportunities in investigations, harbor patrol, um, many other uh, aspects that they can work in. A level three de- reserve deputy sheriff is the entry level. That takes about 162 hours of training. Uh, to be a level three. Uh, this can include uh, working DUI checkpoints, security at large events like the Orange County Fair, and uh, other uh, public relations duties, uh, as well as administrative duties, uh, such as background investigations and training, testing for uh, new recruits.
2: And then the, the last level, the level four, the pu- uh, professional services, they're professional people that assist in the sheriff's office with anything from accounting to law to all sorts of things, right?
1: That's correct. Uh, graphic cards, health care, dignitary protection, firearm safety instruction, legal and accounting services, international protocol, government relations, and emergency response resources. It's really a very valuable team.
2: Yep. And I'm glad to say I'm one of those, so that's fun. Well, why don't you give us the website so people can learn more about it?
1: Okay, the website is www.ocsd.org.
2: And then they can just look for the reserve program, correct?
1: Right, they go to the website, then click on Join OCSD, and then click on Reserves Program. And that'll tell them everything about the reserve programs and all the units.
2: Well, thank you so much, Reserve Sergeant Alan Metz. You're wonderful. Thank you. Bye-bye.